Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. How final it, it really is. There were two, there were two trees in the Most of you know that. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of a life. And I always imagined if I could could have been there. You know, like a fly on the wall listening, you know, watching, hearing overhearing some of the conversation. So so I've written a little story. It's about eight minutes just for the story, then we're gonna talk about it, but of what may have may have happened in the garden. Now, this is based on actual events. You know, the shows that come on TV, they're based on actual events. So some of the events may not be clear in Scripture, but I can infer possibly that the, that it happened. So just want to clear that up. So the, the scene is the garden. There's a discussion going on between the uh, serpent and Eve. And it starts this way. Ah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowing right and wrong. How glorious, how marvelous, what splendor to know what creator knows, to be like him, knowing what is right or wrong. What wisdom, what nourishment, what beauty. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. The serpent continued, look at it, the tree. It's in the center of the garden. It must be more important than all the other trees. All the other trees want to be like it. It radiates as the rays of the sun bounce and flicker off its leaves like the light of a thousand diamonds. Look at it, Eve. Desire it. Nothing ever created compares to this tree, said the serpent. This tree is all you'll ever need. Cherish it. Love it. Guard it with all your heart. Yes, there's another tree here, but it doesn't compare with the awesomeness of this knowledge tree. So don't pay any attention to that other one. Don't you want it, this knowledge tree? Don't you want its benefits? You can have it all, but there's this one thing. You must eat of its fruit. You must take it into your being. You must choose to become one with the tree. Isn't this what you want? I know your creator said don't eat of it or you'll die, but he meant don't eat just of it. You can eat of the so-called tree of life also just later, if you still want to. But you shall not surely die. After all, once you eat of the knowledge tree, you'll be like your creator, knowing what to do or don't do. You can then choose to eat of the other tree also. 
Eating of both trees could even be better for you. The best of both worlds, so to speak. Yes, a mixture of the two. As the words from the fallen angel reverberated in the mind of the woman, she contemplated the logical nature of his argument. It made sense. Why wouldn't I want to be like creator? She mused. After all, didn't he make the man in his own image and me out of the man? He wants us to be like him. This is a perfect solution. Creator will be proud of me. This is all we lack. He will be happy if I do this for him and for the man. The man will be glad also. The man loves me. I'm the apple of his eye. He will join me in this action. I'm excited. We can be like creator and live our life by knowing what is right or wrong. The woman took the fruit and ate and gave it to the man also. And their eyes were opened, but the result was not as they expected. Suddenly, their eyes were opened, but to an overwhelming presence of guilt and condemnation. They felt guilty that they were naked. They felt shame. Instead of feeling close to the Creator, they felt distant. We must hide and clothe ourselves with these leaves from the fruit of the ground, said the couple. Yes, this is the right thing to do. We can fix it because we now know what is right and wrong. But this did not fix it. As they were hiding from the Creator, they watched as the Creator killed an animal. An animal the man had previously named lamb. Not just any lamb, but the very first one named. The very first animal that was created. The first one from the creation. This animal was alive, but now it is without life, the woman said. I have never seen without life. Is this what God meant by surely will die? If this animal had to die, will I then surely also die? I sense something different inside of me. Is this death? What is this that I have done? Will Creator's word actually come to pass? Will I also surely die as this animal has? After God killed the animal called a lamb, he said to them, I love you. This innocent death is for you to cover your nakedness, your guilt. The angel of sin, the serpent, has imparted his nature of sin into you. With sin comes death. You have lost your inner life. You surely have died inside and surely will die outside and return to dust. I am the just one and also the justifier. So God clothed them like a prayer shawl with the skin of the animal called lamb. As the blood from the skin ran down their head onto their face and then to the bottom of their feet, the woman thought, the wages of knowing right and wrong is to be without life? But the gift of creator is the death of innocent life. This is a mystery to me. 
I do not fully understand this action. I'm saddened, yet thankful at the same time for Creator's love. Later on many occasions around the dinner table, their two sons, Cain and Abel, would excitingly ask, Tell us the story again, the time when Creator caused the lamb to be without life. What does it all mean? As Adam and Eve recounted the events in the garden to Cain and Abel, they recounted how they had sinned by choosing the knowledge of right and wrong as a means to be like God. I'm sure Cain and Abel sensed the sorrow and regret in their parents' voices as they told the story. But the story quickly turned to love and the mercy of God. Adam and Eve shared how God killed the animal and clothed them with, with its skin as its blood covered their bodies and dripped to the ground. Although they did not fully understand, they had learned that it is by blood that someone who is without life is made right in the Creator's eyes. All they knew was that without the shedding of blood of innocent life, there is no forgiveness. Abel, more so than Cain, always listened intently. Later, as you know, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to God while Abel brought a firstborn from his flock. The Creator accepted Abel's offering but rejected Cain's. After all the stories about the Creator killing an animal to cover in righteousness, Cain thought it would that he would bring fruit from the cursed ground. Cain wanted to show God that by his hard work he could reverse the curse. Surely God will be pleased, he thought. This makes Cain's offering of the works of his hands so much more sinister. Cain knew that it was by blood, but rejected the blood and offered the fruit of the ground, the works of his hands, as an offering. So in contrast, Abel's offering became so much more sweeter in that Abel believed the word of Adam and Eve about the blood and offered accordingly in faith, and it pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So that's the story. Most of you uh, are familiar with it. God had created two trees in the middle of the garden. They could eat of any tree that they wanted, one tree they couldn't eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at Genesis 2:16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. You ever wonder why were, I've heard this asked? Why were there two trees in the garden? Why didn't God just do the tree of life, solve all these problems, wouldn't have sin in the world? That's anybody have any insight into that that they would like to share at the moment? Free will. That's I think that's that's exactly it. So, you know, God is love, right? And true love 
involves a choice. You know, God didn't want robots, you know, just cast a spell on you and then you do whatever he wants. True love requires a response. You know, love love is given and must be received. Uh, Even the angels, when he created the angels, they had a choice. You, You can see it in everything. So true love is a choice. And he, and I think he's also set it up so that it could cost God something. I think that's just his nature. I think we really have a wrong idea of who God is. I think he's he he has put that choice, for instance, in every human being that little little speck of his nature is is in, is in everyone and. I mean, to save the world, he gave his only begotten son for the forgiveness of the world. So that cost him something. So, and even G, if you know, even Jesus had the choice. He said he could have called 12 legions of angels. He could ask the Father, and the Father would have sent 12 legions of angels to, to save him before the cross. All he had to do was say it. So even Jesus had a choice. Yet, he chose us. He chose to save us above all the suffering that that he would encounter. So I think there were two trees because it is God's nature to have, have choice. He wants to, you to choose. Another thing is we see from that story that the sin nature is in everyone. When they disobeyed, sin entered their being. And remember, they were sinless. And they were created in God's image. They had a body, they had a soul, they had a spirit, all that working together. And when they sinned, sin came in. And what what always follows sin? Starts with like Walt said, starts with a D and ends with an F. So, so sin follows death in every case. So when they disobeyed, so sin entered them. Now, what's the wages of sin? Is death. But keep in mind that sin here is a it's a noun. It's like an entity, a virus. Don't get when sin entered, we're not talking about sinning entered. Sin, this agent, entered them, and it brought death. So when it came in, it attached itself to their body. I look at it kind of like an evil octopus, invisible octopus. It came into them, and it thrust its ghastly tentacles into their soul and their spirit, and it just became a big mess. And the result was immediate bondage and slavery slavery of their inner being to sin which now dwells in them, in their flesh. And then the commencement of the decay of the body, their outer self. The body now destined to return to dust very soon. They now had a different nature, a fallen nature. Now, guess whose nature that is? 
whose nature did they now have? Satan. This fallen nature is the very nature of the of Lucifer himself that he he imparted into man. They were no longer in God's image. And the sad thing is that some still choose this wrong tree, mixing law and grace. Mixing law and grace is tasting from the wrong tree. We'll get to that in just a second. The third thing, and we're going to spend a little more time here, something else happened. The conscience was born. A conscience which never existed before. Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 7, yeah, through 11. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Verse 11. And he said, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So what happened here? They weren't conscious of being naked before. Now all of a sudden they're conscious of being naked. The word conscious means knowing or to know, a knowing. Now a con their conscience now would operate solely on what they would do or not do. That's what the conscience does. It only operates on one thing, what you do. That's the basis of your conscience. And it's in every human. So sin now, which was in their flesh, would now control them by using their consciences to praise them when maybe God's not praising them or maybe condemn them when God's not condemning them. I always use the example, early in my Christian life, when I first became a believer as an adult, the church that we went to was very legalistic. You know, women couldn't wear pants and that kind of, kind of thing. But you know, we, we always uh, would teach against alcohol, against drinking. So it was a sin to have a glass of wine with your meal because it was alcohol. And we would go into great details about how the wine that Jesus drank was really just grape juice. It wasn't really, you know, fermented. So, you know, as religious people do, they, they have to explain the scriptures away. So that's what we did. So that was hammered into me. It was sin to drink a glass of wine. And I wanted a glass of wine with a lot of times with my meal, but I didn't. So we, we were out eating with, with, with some people one time, and 
It wasn't believers from the church, of course. But so, you know, I wanted a glass of wine, so I got a glass of wine. So when I, when I sipped that wine, it's just this sense of condemnation came over me, a sense of guilt, a sense of I'm not worthy, God's turning his back on me. Now, is it a sin to drink a glass of wine with a meal? Of course not. But my conscience was telling me that it was. So the conscience is fickle. So we see from the scriptures we just read, their, their eyes were open. The law of right and wrong from the tree was now written in their, heart, their hearts. They had guilt. They had condemnation. They had fear of God. The conscience telling them that they were naked. No consciousness of being naked before. But now they were conscious of their inadequacy. And this is all because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and, ab- good and evil in order to be like God. So we see the conscience throughout history. You see it in the Gentiles, the, the unbelieving non-Jew Gentiles. Paul writes about this in Romans. And he's going into great detail about how there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew has the law, so they know what's right and wrong, yet they fail, so they're guilty. But the, the unbelieving Gentiles are guilty also because they have the, right, the knowledge of right and wrong written on their hearts from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when they disobey, then they're guilty before God. So all fall short of the glory of God. And Paul's bringing that home. And in Romans 2.14, Paul writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Verse 15. In that they show the work of the law, or the mor- this is the moral law, written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. You can see the conscience working here, accusing, defending, depending on what's right or wrong in in their mind. The conscience is a part of the fallen nature. Every human has a conscience. Now, the conscience is good for the unbeliever because it keeps them in check. I mean, there would be more chaos in the world than it is now if unbelievers didn't have a conscience based on right and wrong. But the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. I mean, can you think of serial killers? I mean, can you imagine what's going on, how their conscience has been seared and what they're doing? You know, it's just, as I said, the conscience can be very fickle. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul said, Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars 
seared in their own conscience. So the, the point of, of the conscience here is that the Gentiles know what's right and wrong, and they fall, fall short, and, and the Jews have the law, and they know what's right and wrong. So the Jews, what about the Jews and their conscience? Now, the Jews were a unique people because they had the law of Moses. No other peoples before or after had the law of Moses. So what God did, he reached, God reached into that Jew, pulled out the knowledge of the tree of life, I mean the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He pulled that tree of the knowledge of good and evil out of them and magnified it and codified it into 613 laws. Now, this includes the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the first ten of the 613. I mean, they're the foundation or basis for all the rest of the law. Theologians today, you know, a lot of times say that we're, uh, we're free from the ceremonial law, but we're still bound by the Ten Commandments, or the, the first ten. So, and they call that the moral law that was, that's in even the unbelievers from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just a side note, you know, it's really not ten, it's really only nine because most of them didn't, don't meet on the Sabbath and still don't keep the Sabbath holy, which is Saturday, but I, I digress. So, no one is designed to live by the law of Moses, the 613, the first 10, or any of them, to receive life. They're not supposed to live by them to get life. Not the first couple, not you, not me. Trying to live by rules and regulations does not produce life. Think back to even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? It didn't produce life. Knowing right and wrong did not produce life. It produced death. Well, why in the world did, would God even then create the law? Why, why did he do that to the Jew? Galatians 3, 19. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. 3.22 But the scripture or the law has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law came in to, to actually make sin exceedingly, exceedingly sinful. You know, when Moses, you know, came down with the Ten Commandments and he was speaking it to the people, it wasn't a big surprise to a lot of the, a lot of the people when Moses says, "Thou shalt not murder." One of the ten. I can imagine the people when he. You know, thou shalt not murder, and they would go, yeah, that's right. I know we shouldn't murder. Yeah, well, 
it, it was something already in them. All, all the law was doing was pulling that out in their face. And when he would say, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, true dad, we, sh- we shouldn't steal. It's, I know that's wrong. So it wasn't a really a big surprise. But it was given to shut the mouth of everyone who said, we can do it. We can we can be like God or we can please God by what we do or what we don't do. The law of Moses was only for the Jew to magnify sin by enhancing their consciences so that they, w- they would come to the end of themselves and at the appointed time believe in their Messiah who would take away their sin and give them his own righteousness as a free gift. The law was never given to produce life. In fact, if a rule could have been given that when obeyed would have produced life, then righteousness would have been through rule-keeping. All right, what about you and me? Should a believer live by their conscience? What's the role of a conscience to believers? Well, the thing to consider is this. Will you, a new creation, have a conscience when you're no longer in your body? To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Will will your conscience go with you to heaven? I would say absolutely not. The conscience is part of the fallen creation. Since it's it's in all fallen men and came into being from an act of sin in the very beginning, the conscience will stay in the coffin with the body. All right, here's the problem. The problem is sometimes when you sin as believers, the conscience condemns you. You sense something may be wrong between you and God. It tells you, you need to be forgiven of that sin. It tells you that you're rotten. You, you feel guilt. How could you do that and still call yourself a Christian? God has turned his back on you until you ask for forgiveness. You may not even be saved. Anybody ever had similar thoughts? I had. I didn't ask for hands. All right. It's important to realize this is not God convicting you. It is sin which dwells in the flesh, using the conscience, warring against the spirit of your mind, trying to bring you into bondage. The bondage to believe that sins still separate you from God in some way. The conscience is a tool that sin in the flesh uses to to communicate with your mind. We must resist these thoughts with the truth of our salvation. Scripture says to bring every thought into the subjection of Christ. Well, what thoughts are we to bring into the subjection of Christ? That that somehow the blood of Jesus didn't work, that somehow you're still accountable even as a believer that sin separates you from, some, from in some way. And we do not accept the teachings of the great philosopher, Jiminy Cricket. 
Anybody? It's maybe before a lot of y'all's time. Jiminy Cricket, you know, it was, was it Pinocchio's concert or something? Well, his famous quote is, always let your conscience be your guide. Is that good advice to a believer? No, I would say no, no, no. I, I tried to find a little video clip of him saying that. But it was beyond my technical ability. So that internet scares me. So, so we don't let our consciences be our guide. So what is a believer's guide? What is their guide? It's the Spirit of God who now dwells in you, who now reveals truth to you, apart from the tree of the knowledge of right and wrong. The Spirit is revealing the Son to a believer, and who does the Son reveal? The Father. So, so that is that d- dynamic for a believer. But we still have a conscience, and if you, re- if you look up the Scriptures about the conscience, it's important to have a good conscience, a clear conscience. So how, how does all that work? Our conscience must be trained to follow the Spirit because now we have, as believers, the mind of Christ. So we have his mind. So if we have this conscience that's part of the flesh coming in trying to condemn us, it must be subdued. So the conscience must be retaught what is really good, what is really evil, what is truly good and what's truly evil. For instance, what is truly good is to cease from our own works in order to be righteous and rest in the righteousness of Jesus as our own righteousness. That's truly good. Truly evil, what's, what would be truly evil? It's to think that sin still separates you from God in some way. Or that your fellowship is hindered until you ask for forgiveness. These are thoughts that are coming through the conscience from the sin that's in the flesh, trying trying to discourage and trying to corrupt your mind that is trying to be renewed to, to heavenly things. These are thoughts from an unclean conscience. The conscience that is not clear prevents you from seeing the unseen realities because it keeps you focused on the flesh. What you do, what you don't do. That's focusing on the flesh. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul is discipling Timothy using love from a pure heart. And he's discipling him also that he could have a good conscience and a sincere faith. So as the Spirit renews our minds to the finished work of Christ, the truth of the gospel, that we're forgiven for all sin for all time, The conscience is also being recalibrated to bear witness to the revelation of Jesus and his word. So when the conscience is trained to filter everything through the finished work of Christ, we'll have a clean conscience. 
And when that happens, then the conscience begins to defend the mindset of rest having been enlightened by the Spirit. Then it, it starts no longer to condemn, but it starts to, to uh, verify because it's being conformed. So it's important to have a clean conscience. In Hebrews 10, verse 1, coming up, there it is. Verse 1 and 2, it says, For the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So in other words, if the, those Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats, if they had, had worked, there would no longer have been a need for them to be reapplied the very next year. And the and the one, the worshiper, would not have had consciousness of sins that still need to be forgiven. So the blood of Jesus is wiped away sin for all time, all sin for all time. So a believer's conscience now should not be condemning him or her that they're still in need of forgiveness for sins. Even uh, in 1 John 3.21, we don't have it up here, but John says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And in context here, he's talking about the conscience. So if we don't have the condemning conscience that we're, not forgiven or that God's still holding our sins against us or that he's mad at us or, or whatever, if we don't have that nagging conscience, then we can have confidence before God of, of his work and what he did. All right, the, la the last thing, there was another tree there. We've been talking about the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, but there was another tree, and it was called the tree of life. Now, guess who, who the tree of life represents? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent rules and regulations, right and wrong, in order to be like God. And if you eat of that tree, it brings death. So what was the tree of life? And notice it was it's not the knowledge of the tree of life. It is life. Of course, that would be Jesus himself. All they had to do in the garden was eat of that tree. And they, and they would have had life. But eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden revealed to the first couple what was right and what was wrong. And it produced death. Eating of the tree of life reveals a secret hidden in God, the very heart of the Father. So it's 
right and wrong, do's and don'ts versus life. And so it is today. Sin in the flesh creates religions that teach men to worship God by understanding right and wrong. Do the right, don't do the wrong. Sin in the flesh wants you to live by the wrong tree. In other words, if we just knew what not to do, we would be in good shape. Look what Romans 3.20, what Paul says in Romans. Romans 3.20 coming up. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we've been talking about knowledge of right and wrong. So So the law actually brings to you the knowledge of wrong. So why would we want to live by law? Because it's just going to bring death. And this mindset has been incorporated into every religion ever devised, including legalistic Christianity. You can see it in every denomination, every cult. You see it in churches down the street, Christian TV, reincarnation, Islam, Judaism. Even Buddhism teaches that one one can obtain nirvana or this enlightened state. I asked a Buddhist one time, he said, would it be good news to you if someone offered you nirvana as a free gift and that you didn't have to live a hundred lives through reincarnation to build up your account so you could actually reach nirvana? And he, he had no response. But I could see he was thinking about it. If some of what he's been desiring is, have have you know? I guess he used to be a frog, but he was a good frog. So he he built up points, and he was a kitty cat the next time. And finally, as I was speaking to him, he was a human. So he he's been doing good. You know, he's built up to a human now. All that work, all those lives, all those thousands of years. You know, he could have just believed in the Christ and what he searched all his life for would just have been given to him as a free gift. So religion based on works is the default setting for the flesh. There isn't any hope for this world. And the world's in pretty bad shape. All you got to do is turn on the news and see that. There isn't any hope for this world that we live in unless we start as believers proclaiming the good news of the gospel of grace without mixing it with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we and we do that all the time. We uh, Paul tells the Galatians, he says, having begun in the spirit, having believed by faith in Christ, are you now brought into maturity or made complete by knowing what is right and wrong and doing what is right and doing what is wrong? Obeying the law, being circumcised. Are you now completed by law after having begun in the Spirit? The two, the two trees can't be mixed. Look, in Genesis 3.22 is our last verse. Verses. L- look what happens. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is after they have eaten, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubims and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The way to life was shut off. God would not allow them to eat of the tree of life while still in their fallen state of living death. God placed angels above the good tree to prevent it from happening. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know, but in the Jewish temple, there was a veil, and Craig talked about it a little bit a while ago. A big, thick veil in front of the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where God manifested his presence once a year. So the veil is in front of that, preventing access. And tradition has it that uh, embroidered, that's hard to say for somebody from Louisiana, embroidered on the veil, stenciled. So there were two angels stenciled on that veil, facing each other, symbolizing, I think, the scene from the garden where God put the two angels and the flaming sword in front of the tree of life to prevent access. So here's this veil, which is a shadow of Christ's body. Two angels facing each other, the veil preventing access. Then you have Jesus at the same time on the cross. And when Jesus says, it is finished, And then it says he gave up his spirit. And then the scripture says the veil split from top to bottom. And it was as if the angels stepped aside, allowing unfettered access now into the presence of life. And it was through the body and the work of Jesus. So now... All who believe basically choose to eat of the tree of life. And all you have to do is believe that God took away your guilt, your condemnation, your sin through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. That's all you got to believe. One, It's very simple. So you say, well, well, how could God do this and remain just? How could you receive, because the two can't be, be mixed, so how can your inner person, which is contaminated by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how can it now, how can you eat of life and have life when, you know, when the two can't be mixed? But So what happens when you believe God reaches within you, cuts out your dead inner person, with a circumcision made without hands, 
takes that, and so that inner person is contaminated by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For he takes the inner you, crucifies you in the grave with him. And then he raises you a completely new creation, a recreated being, no longer contaminated by the knowledge of good and evil. You're new. So when when you believe, you're basically making you're eating of the tree of life and you receive life. So I'm gonna I end with this quote from uh, James Barron, which he's he's addressing some of this. Quote The new life is a transfer in thinking from one tree to the other, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the tree of life. Natural man thinks the issue is good and evil, right and wrong, because he has been blinded by the only tree he knows. Only by the Spirit can man step back from the tree and see the forest, so to speak. Only then can man see there are two trees. Only then can man see that the real issue is flesh and spirit, death and life, and not good and evil. Good will follow the life. Good is the fruit of his life. This was, in essence, the revelation that was given to the apostle. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.